You're listening to a message from New Life Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Welcome to church. Good to have you. I'm James. Uh, I get the privilege of speaking this weekend and next out of the book of Philippians. We're in this little eight-part series entitled Impact. Um, And if no one's told you yet already today, be reminded that Jesus loves you. Uh, Pastor Ron and Annette send their greetings. They're getting a little bit of time away with the kids and grandkids down in Southern California, so they love you and wanted me to pass that along. Um, If you're new or visiting here, welcome. We love you too. Hope that you find this to be a place of hospitality, and we'd love to make this your church home. All right, here's the big idea. Every sermon needs to kind of get boiled down to a nutshell, so here's the one for this morning. It says, gospel-centered unity creates God-honoring behavior. Let me say that again. Gospel-centered unity creates God-honoring behavior. That means unity between believers that is centered on Jesus will generate actions and behaviors that honors God. That's, what, that's the kind of the big idea that we're going to look at in the text today out of Philippians chapter 2. So let's go ahead and pray and jump into it. All right, God... You've given us today, help us not to waste it. Help us in an age of contention and strife and disunity to be a people of peace, strengthened by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, to live in a way that honors you. Help us to shine as lights in the world. God, we can't do it on our own. We love you and we need you. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is the text that Ron preached from last week. We loved it so much, we thought it would be good to kind of take another go-round at it. I really love this passage. You'll notice if you got that half-sermon sheet, you'll see the entire text, all 18 verses, all squished in there, um, because I want you to be able to see it, follow along with me, uh, use your pen or pencil to mark up the text so that you can kind of see the key words, thoughts, and ideas that Paul is trying to communicate To my observation, there are three major sections in this text, and I'm going to give you the big idea for each right up front. The first in verses 1 through 4, the big idea, and you'll see in the bottom of your bulletin, you can fill that in. The first is that unity results in humility. That's the big idea in verses 1 through 4. Then in verses 5 through 11, that humility is the result of having the mind of Christ, Humility is the result of having the mind of Christ. And then lastly, the last section, part three, is having the mind of Christ results in shining as lights in the world. That's verses 12 through 18. All right? Let's go ahead and hop into it. Verses one through four, the big idea, unity results in humility. Paul writes, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Okay, first, Paul, who's the author of this letter, he starts off with a list of things that he'll appeal it to. Notice the repetition, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Basically, if there's anything good that God has done in your life, Philippian church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to complete my joy. I want you to do me the favor of completing my joy. How do you complete Paul's joy? The answer is unity. Now watch what he does here. You see the next word there, complete my joy, by. That's the word that indicates how the Philippian church is going to complete Paul's joy. Notice all of the themes here on unity. By being of the same mind, by having the same love, by being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is piling up these repetition of lists to make a simple point. That the thing that will make him happiest as their pastor and church planter is the unity of of the congregation. So for Paul, in this passage, unity here is going to be a product of your thinking. Notice, be of the same mind, a product of their generosity and love by being of the same love and a full accord. And verses 3 and 4 provide a practical application for what a life of unity and love looks like, namely, service of the other. Watch for the markers of humility as we read in verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition, or vain conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is really difficult. I mean, think about the last time you genuinely considered somebody else's interests ahead of your own. This can get expressed in some small ways. Like you might be there standing in line at Fred Meyer with your yogurt and your motor oil because both of those things are sold at Fred Meyer. God bless America. And then the person behind you is like, oh, you've got two items. Why don't you go ahead of me in line? And that's a very kind thing to do. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you've done it before. You're considering the needs of someone else more important than your own. It might come in really big ways. You know, I'm still waiting for my kids to sleep through the night. I don't know if that's your experience, but they just, they just decide that at, you know, three in the morning, now's a great time to start yelling because of teeth or growing pains or whatever else. So, you know, it would be like if this week my kids are yelling, it's early, early in the morning, I look at my wife and I say, sweetheart, you know, you are so much more significant to them than I am. It's really best that you go take care of them. I'll stay here. And I really think that that kind of generosity is important. It's, it's just really hard to consider the needs of someone else more than your own, even your own spouse. I thought I was a really nice guy. And then I got married. And the marriage just demonstrated that I'm really actually selfish. And And then I had kids, which is just even more. God puts us through situations in our life to often demonstrate that we are, at our core, unable to maintain the kind of humility that verses 3 and 4 asks us to do. Looking out for your own interests in a way that is genuine, that's reflexive, that's automatic, it's impossible on our own. Let me say that again. Achieving genuine unity through humility is impossible on our own. We cannot do it, which is why we need Jesus. This is Paul's next point, verses 5 through 11. The big idea in verses 5 through 11 is that humility is the result 
of having the mind of Christ. Notice the connection between the first two paragraphs. Unity is the result of humility. We need humility to have unity. Well, how do you get humility? You don't have it naturally, so what do you do? You look to having the mind of Christ. Verses 5 through 11, Paul writes, Have this mind among you, or among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Paul starts us here in verse 5. He reminds us, have this, mind in, have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, meaning that as Christians, as those of us who have put our faith in Christ, one of the things that happens is that we begin to resemble the thinking process and pattern of Jesus. And what does this thinking process and pattern look like in Jesus? It looks like total surrender to God in every aspect of life. I want you to watch the V-shaped pattern of this passage. Here's what he says. We start with the idea that Jesus is God, that Jesus is enthroned above all of creation as God Almighty, worshiped by the angels. And yet from that position, Jesus did not count, he did not grasp onto his Godhood. Rather, he empties himself, taking a step down out of heaven. In fact, he takes the form of a servant. Not only that, he is born in the likeness of men and he humbles himself to the point of death. And not just death, but the death of on a cross. Can you think of the gap that exists between God enthroned above, worshiped by the angels, to a man, a Galilean manual laborer being crucified naked on a cross by the Roman government? I cannot imagine a, a, a bigger gap between where Jesus was and where he went to. The humility that Jesus offers us, that Philippians 2 describes for us, is a beautiful, sobering, amazing thing when we consider the communion table, the work of the cross. I hope that you don't get tired of realizing the enormity, the immensity of the sacrifice that God has made. But we don't, we don't end there. The end of the story is not Jesus dead on a cross. The very next word is therefore, and don't miss this, it's because of Jesus' humility and sacrifice on the cross that we see what happens next. God exalts him. God exalts Jesus. God bestows on Jesus the name that is above every other name. Why? So that all mankind will bow in submission to Jesus' authority Jesus' lordship will be proclaimed by every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And what's the point of all of that? So that at the end of the day, God gets all the glory. Do you see that Jesus has emptied himself of all and God has restored and exalted him to everything? We serve a God who has come down to come near and now we serve a God who is risen again as the true Lord of the world. And it all begins and ends with God's glory, not our own. And to my observation, this is the fundamental battle of our hearts and lives. Are we going to choose a worldview that is fundamentally about our rights, our ambitions, our needs, our benefits, 
Or are we going to choose a worldview that is fundamentally and places God at the center of and ahead of everything else? It is an incredibly difficult journey to make, one that I cannot do on my own. So what do we need? For every difficult journey, you need a hero and a guide. And that hero guide is the man Jesus Christ. Your journey from selfishness to humility is not so great a journey as God's or Jesus' journey from God above to crucified manual laborer. So Jesus has gone before us. Jesus teaches us. Jesus shows us the way. And Jesus can be trusted to lead us to this place of surrender upon God himself. So what do I mean? I mean that humility is the result of having the mind of Christ. You can't get to unity unless you have humility. You can't get to humility unless you depend on Jesus for everything. Here's the third point, moving on. Verses uh, 12 through 18. The big idea here is that having the mind of Christ results in shining as lights in the world. Paul writes, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, I want you to notice the therefore of verse 12. That word is telling us that we can't do what follows unless we've understood what's come before. That is, that we can't work out our salvation, we can't do everything without grumbling and complaining unless we have adopted or been brought into the mind of Christ, which is this idea of being entirely devoted to God. When that happens, obedience will occur. Now, Paul is going to use a curious phrase here in verse 12. Did you notice this? He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound kind of odd to you? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I thought for sure I was saved by faith and not by works. What's Paul saying here? Uh, A couple of things to keep in mind. Two points here. Uh, The your, work out your salvation. The word in the Greek is actually plural. Paul's not writing to you individually. He's writing to all of us as a congregation. So we as a community need to do what? And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a key differential. The mechanism by which you get saved has never changed, Old Testament or New Testament. It has always been trust, faith in the promises of God to do what he says he will do. Now in the New Testament, we see it uniquely in Jesus Christ. So our faith in Jesus to do what he said he will do which is through his death on the cross to take away our sin through his sacrifice, now giving us right standing with God. When our faith is there, then we are saved, period, end of story. Of course, what happens next is equally important in that we can't just say, well, I've got faith in God, but then demonstrate nothing like the changed attitude, behavior, and mindset the New Testament calls us to. So yes, there is a connection. So what's the connection between faith and works? Works does not generate faith, but faith, if appropriately applied, should generate good work. And it is the good work that Paul is calling this entire congregation to, to say, I want you to work out what it means to be saved. I want you to explore how it is that you follow Christ within the context here in the first century in the city of Philippi, and now in the 21st century in the Portland metro area. How do we as a congregation of believers 
express what it means to be following Christ faithfully, humbly, and in unity within the context of the world in which we live. This is what Paul is calling us to there. Work out your salvation. And fear and trembling simply means that this is holy and important work. That it can't be missed. That we as a congregation, as a community together, have a responsibility to ask the question, what does an appropriate expression of our faith in Jesus look like within the context in which we live? So Paul calls his people to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And here's Paul's final plea to the Christians at Philippi. He says, I want you to conduct yourselves with unity and grace. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not uh, run in vain or labor in vain. And then verses um, 17 and 18 is just Paul's final uh, benediction to the congregation. I love verses 14 because it follows verses 12 and 13. Paul has just said, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to take up this high and holy task of figuring out what it means to express your faith to the world around you. And the very next thing he says, oh, and by the way, a key part of what that looks like is that you don't grumble or complain. (laughs) That you don't grumble or dispute. Doing so is a means to be blameless and innocent, to be blameless and innocent, to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a, do you notice how he described the world in which Paul lived, a crooked and twisted generation? Isn't that interesting? A crooked and twisted generation. A lot of us would say, ah, not much has changed apparently. I don't know, side note here, I talk to a lot of Christians, and the vibe that I get for a lot of them is that the world is getting worse. Um... I want to humbly disagree, actually. The world has always been kind of a dumpster fire. I mean, there's always been something to complain about, you know. Um, But by and large, um, I think it's getting better. Now, there are particular moments, right? But I think the overall trend line is because of the work of Christ in the world that we have an opportunity to shine as lights in the world. And I think that the light is winning, and this is an important thing because if you, if you think the other way, if you think that it's all getting worse and worse and worse and worse, then you'll likely kind of withdraw from effective, thoughtful, cultural engagement as a Christian because what you're really waiting for is for things to get so bad that Jesus will appear, set everything right, and you'll get taken out of here. And I would push back against that perspective because from a point of view of our mission here in the world, we're not called to simply sit on our hands, hope things get bad enough that Jesus like breaks the emergency glass, pulls the trigger, and like, all right, my people are getting out. I'm not sure. I think that we're called within the sense of a twisted and crooked generation. Sure, we still need to call reality what it is. But by and large, I think that the church is winning, that you're seeing an explosion of revival in places like sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia, that you're seeing like certain metrics around like child mortality, children being dying under the age of five in Africa. Uh, you're seeing the number of people who are living on less than $2 a day, the poorest of the poor, which in the 1980s was 80% of Africa. And by the year 2030, the best numbers suggest that we will eradicate extreme poverty worldwide. 
That's an incredible step forward for all of us, and that gives us an opportunity as Christians, and who's often leading that way? Faith-based relief organizations who are mobilizing the resources of the developed world to help the underdeveloped world. And in those places, we see Christianity thriving. So I think the world is getting better, and you may disagree on some points, and we can certainly get into that, but I think that the light is winning. I want to encourage you. Guys, I read the end of the story. I don't want this to come as a spoiler, but... Jesus wins, right? He really does, okay? He's still in control. And I know that sometimes it feels very scary, very outside of our control, very much like the things that we're holding on to and the values that we cherish and hold dear are being eroded at a very rapid pace. But I will tell you this, that nothing erodes the throne of God. And so he remains in control. And while the world around us does what it will do, I hope that we as a congregation continue to take seriously Paul's command to work out what it means to express our salvation with a holy sense of fear and seriousness in the world in which we live. All right, so let's recap. Here's in one minute everything what I just said. First, unity results in humility. The key thing for Paul's congregation was that they think with the same worldview, that is, of Christ, that they loved with the same motivation, that they shared all things in common with the same generosity. So we've got to focus on our thinking. Second, that kind of humility is the result of having the mind of Christ. You cannot live a genuine, others-centered, servant-hearted kind of life in your own strength. But the good news is you have a hero. His name is Jesus. He has gone before us. He paves the way for us, and he empowers us. In fact, he has given us every resource and opportunity we need to experience and embrace the mind of Christ. He is now the exalted God above, worthy of all of our allegiance and praise. Third, having the mind of Christ results in shining as lights in the world. Is the world dark? Yes, all the better for you to shine brightly. If you want to make a big difference in the world around you, Paul will say, oh, by the way, resist grumbling and resist complaining. Love it. Okay. Now, with the, I don't know, 10 minutes we got left here, um, why don't we just talk about political posts on Facebook and see how Philippians 2 connects all that? I make terrible choices, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, that's what we're going to do. It's affecting my life. It might be affecting yours. Um, If you're not on social media, bless you. Tell us your secrets for a happy life. We need them. This will be over soon. Um, A little disclaimer. Um, (laughs) This is super scary. (laughs) That's my disclaimer. Um, I was on Facebook this week, found this coming through my feed. It was somebody I know. Sorry, that's really small. I'll read it to you. He says, well... I've been wanting to wean myself away from Facebook. Thanks to all these political posts, I think I found my motivation. And then there's a dozen comments, more or less of the line of like, yeah, we got you, bro. I'm, I'm for sure there. Then somebody towards the bottom, he's like, yeah, I get that, except for then I'll get a whole bunch of likes on my post and all the willpower to stay away from Facebook goes out the window. <laughs> I thought, boy, that's kind of true, isn't it? I don't know, maybe there's a sermon in there about social media addiction in the Christian, but I've experienced that. There's a certain degree of fatigue that we've been experiencing, certainly prior to the November election and now um, since between the election and the inauguration and since January 20th as well. Um, Gosh, you know, I'm sorry, guys. I know you probably don't come to church to kind of think about these things, and certainly on Super Bowl Sunday, which is a great moment of escape. I saw this this afternoon. I'm sure everybody's more or less feeling like this, enough with the political posts. Can we just get back to hating Tom Brady? (laughs) Yeah, all right. I thought that was, thought that was clever. 
Okay, take a little pop quiz. Take a look at this set of adjectives there on the top. Patriotism, unity, safety. Take a look at the words on the bottom. Benevolence, equality, social justice. All of these are virtues. All of these are broadly positive things. Ask yourself which cluster of words you identify most with. Okay? Um, Social scientists say that that top set of words, patriotism, unity, and safety, most closely aligns with a Republican point of view. Benevolence, equality, and social justice most closely aligns with a Democratic or liberal point of view. Have I just changed anyone's political party? (laughs) Maybe not. So um, this is important. Um, Benevolence, equality, and social justice are not bad things. And neither is patriotism, unity, and safety. And what often happens is that people who tend to operate from one set of worldviews that says these are the things that are most important will take an issue, say, for instance, um, the executive order that suspended immigration from seven predominantly Muslim countries. You saw a set of posts and perspective from one side that said, we are creating inequality, we're violating social justice, and we're unkind. And you saw another perspective coming from the opposite side that says, America needs to take care of its own. We have a strong sense for being able to maintain the unity of our country, and most of all, safety is the paramount thing. So you see how both sides are addressing the same issue, but from their own set of fundamental assumptions, neither of which are necessarily incorrect. But if you were to go onto Facebook today and say you were an alien who came down to earth and wondered, like, what do these people believe in? And just based on the kind of stuff that I've seen in my Facebook feed, you would assume that what you see is, is what's going to show up next here, um, is that you get Democrats and Republicans. But Democrats aren't just Democrats. They're, they're baby-killing socialist snowflakes who would sooner burn down your Starbucks in the name of free speech than have a dialogue with you. And then on the other side, I see stuff that basically calls Republicans a whole bunch of gun-loving racist Nazis who would rather kick everybody out who's not white and are comfortable with mass shootings in schools. Now, oh, I looked at that slide in my office when I built that, and I was like, to be fair, both sides have to deal with the lunatic fringe that exists, right? In my observation, what actually comes closer is that, yes, while we might align with certain sides of the spectrum, broadly speaking, there's a huge swath of people right there in the middle who want the best for the nation but have slightly different perspectives on the best means to go about doing it. But you would know that Because most political discourse in social media tends to isolate on the extremes and then from that extrapolate outwards to now group everybody on that side of the spectrum into the behavior of the fringe. And if you've ever been stereotyped based on association with a group, you know how uncomfortable that feels and how difficult it is to maintain a healthy, unified posture of effective dialogue. 
And so my caution to us is that regardless of whatever spectrum you land on here, when you see things that show up in your Facebook feed or elsewhere on social media that tend to um, focus on the behavior of the extreme margins and then from there assume that everybody who's a part of that group shares those same perspectives, please resist. I don't think it's helpful, and I think it only makes worse this, this very interesting cultural moment where um, we now tend to see people on other sides of the spectrum, not just as fellow Americans with differing views about how the country should move forward, but literally as the enemy. And Philippians 2 says that the most important thing that we have as a church, one of the most important witnesses that we have is unity. And please don't misunderstand me by saying that unity requires uniformity in the way that you vote or your political perspectives. That's not at all what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that the means by which we discuss these things, the means by which we address these things, especially in the social space, is a key reflection of our attitudes and allegiances. Please do not, for in the, in the name or in the sake of defending your perspective on how to be allegiant to the United States, disregard your higher and greater and first allegiance to Jesus. That's the key thing. Patriotism is first to the kingdom of God. And we need to be motivated by our allegiance to Jesus as the true Lord and King. And so let us not, for the sake of expressing our political viewpoints, destroy our witness to a brother. All right, so... um, So here's the challenge. If you were to go to my Facebook feed, you wouldn't see anything political. And it's not because I don't have political thoughts. It's because I'm trying to kind of walk a very fine line. Here's what we know. We know that 80% of white evangelicals voted Republican in the 2016 election. We also know that probably 80% of people who didn't vote Republican consider the current Republican candidate to be about the worst. So... We also know um, that most Democrats tend to be non-Christian. So if I, in my posts, divide a line or create allegiances that I know will offend or push people away who are not Christian, I would rather, for the sake of mission, to embrace and to open an opportunity for everyone, just simply not say anything at all. And frankly, I can't think of one person who goes onto Facebook to have their political mind changed, (laughs) right? I don't think you've ever had that experience. We tend to live in echo chambers. Just be conscientious of the fact that there are people who are watching you who don't yet go to church, who don't yet trust Jesus, and they're making assumptions about how Christians behave, think, and believe based on the kind of stuff that you're putting on social media. So be mindful. Yes, I can't tell you the number of times I get this, this urge is so strong. I'll be sitting there, I'll get up early in the morning, I got my Bible in one hand and my phone in the other. And then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what, I bet you somebody on the internet is wrong. I need to go find out about that. <laughs> and all of a sudden I find myself like, I should be reading the Bible and yet here I am on Twitter or Facebook and I'm getting upset with wrong people. And you want to say something, Resist. 
please do not, for the sake of um, free speech, expressing your opinions, which we will hold dear and which we will fight for everyone, even if it is not content that we agree with. Um, but please do not, for the sake of free speech, limit, mute, or make more difficult the way of peace and the way of the gospel. Here's a few suggestions for a way forward that just encourages unity. Um, first thing, maybe just log off. I was, uh, I, I, um, I'm in a small group every Wednesday with some guys, and I was talking about how I find myself, like, actually my life is worse the more closely I follow political activity on Facebook. I just feel icky. And I was just kind of commenting to this, and a buddy of mine was like, yeah, man, I totally get it. I deleted Twitter and Facebook, the apps, from my phone. And my life has gotten 100% better. So right then and there, I got up, I went to my phone, and I deleted Facebook and Twitter off of my phone. I still have the accounts, but I don't have them on my phone. Because you know how you are. Like, you've got a, a downtime. What do you most normally do? Oh, look at Facebook. And I couldn't do that anymore. And uh, let me tell you, I've been living the dream. <laughs> now, um, does your voice still need to be heard? Sure. But here's the thing. Like I mentioned the echo chamber earlier. And this is pretty consistent. If you come from a, a worldview, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, chances are you will self-select voices that reinforce your existing worldview. Okay? The old Simon and Garfunkel song, All Lies in Jest, Still a Man Hears What He Wants to Hear, and Disregards the Rest. So we've got an opportunity. There's the, the, so the next challenge is uh, diversify your inputs. Now, this is a really small graph, but basically it charts the ideological influences of certain media outlets. On the right, you've got the standards, Breitbart, Rush Limbaugh, Blaze, Hannity, Glenn Beck, Drudge, Fox News. On the left, you've got New Yorker, Slate, BuzzFeed, Vox, Huffington Post, etc. And you probably know where you get your news. Um, and my encouragement to you is um, respectfully enter into someone else's space. Chances are they're operating from a different fundamental set of beliefs and behaviors about things that they value most. On the left, we tend to value equality even more than safety, hence the immigration hurrah. Um, so if you're trying to go outside of yourself, I encourage you to take a look at the, certain, of the content that you're looking at and then ask yourself, how can I diversify that so that I understand other voices? At minimum, it will make you more empathetic. Well, no. At worst, it will make you even more crazy. <laughs> I, I knew it. They were all the worst. Um, because partisanship does exist. Okay? But it's still possible to find reasoned, thoughtful, helpful content out there. Um, diversify your inputs. And then lastly is this. Please do not say anything online that you would not say to a person's face. Anonymity um, is, a, is a heck of a drug. And it will make you do things that you didn't thought possible. So please, again, Christians, you are a Christian in your online space. So steward that well. Guard your voice. And the platform that Facebook has given you um, is, is there to help you reach and embrace people for the sake of the gospel, not simply retweet or repost things that you find amusing or disparaging to the other side. So let us, for the sake of the gospel... Um, engage political decisions, which we must as good citizens. I'm not advocating for a retreat from the public sphere at all. But what I am advocating for is that we as Christians thoughtfully engage this space out of a position of humility, considering others more important than ourselves. And for some of us, that might mean mute. 
And for some of us, that might mean listen. And for some of us, that might mean to respectfully engage. And of course, when you do that, there are other yahoos and bozos on the internet who will shout you down and cuss at you and call you all sorts of stereotypical names. And I'm sorry, that's just the way it happens. Love them anyway. That's what Jesus does. You just love them anyway. All right? Together, as a church, we move forward in unity. Okay? Let's go ahead and pray. We'll be done. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.